And six months prior to that Olympic Games, I was diagnosed HIV positive. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. I'm Aaron Huey, and I can't tell you just how excited and honored I am for our guest today. I watched the a moment that billions of people watched all over the world, and in this moment, I, as a child, and with my mom's openness and her connection and our ability to communicate together, we had a conversation about hysteria. And watching a moment that so many people watched and then watched a world that didn't know what was going on react with nothing but fear and the support had to grow and it took years for support to grow. I'm going to say more about this, obviously, as we start talking to my guest today about adoption, about championship mindset, about moving from juvie to Olympic champion. My guest today is the greatest diver of all time, Greg Luganis. Greg, thank you so much for being on Beyond Risk and Back. Welcome to the show. I know my parents are going to love to hear you. <laughs> how do I even how do I even start with the first question to ask when you hit your head watching the news discussing it in sociology class, discussing it in multimedia class in my high school. Were they going to drain the pool? Were they going to, you know, they, they, it was it was hysteria the way I saw it. How old were you when that happened? Okay, uh, that was the 1988 Olympic Games. And six months prior to that Olympic Games, I was diagnosed HIV positive. Nobody knew about my HIV status at that time. And so, um, because I wouldn't have been allowed into the country had they known my HIV status because there was a travel ban. And so this was a secret that uh, my coach and I carried through that Olympic games. Uh, when I hit my head, I mean, that, that was my concern. What's my responsibility? You know, that was one of, one of the concerns. And so, um, Really, the only one that was asked at risk that, you know, because we understood HIV, there, there was not a whole lot of education at that time in 1988 surrounding HIV. There's not a whole lot of compassion surrounding HIV AIDS at that time. Uh, a lot of people felt that it was killing the right people, IV drug users, prostitutes, and homosexual men. Yeah, it was, it was really very challenging. I didn't think, I, and actually at the time, I didn't think anybody would ever know that that actually happened. Because I told, when, uh, when I finished the Olympics uh, in 88, and we were given our Olympic rings, and we we're supposed to share something with, you know, thank the appropriate people, and then um, share what the experience was for us. And I turned to my coach and I said, Ron to my coach, Ron O'Brien, and I said, nobody will ever know what we've been, just been through. And I honestly believe that because I thought it was a secret that we were going to take to the grave with us. But I did, uh, and coming out 
coming out, whether you're coming out about your sexual identity or, you know, your sexuality or your HIV or cancer or whatever that is, it's a process. Um, you have to accept it, recognize it, and in that sense, embrace it. It was kind of a process. I, I was doing Jeffrey in, in New York, the play, uh, at the Manetolane Theater about gay dating in the, in the 90s uh, with HIV AIDS, 80s, 90s. And um, I played Darius, and I was able to realize or uh, each night I, I was able to face my greatest fears and my fantasies because Darius was out and proud. He was in gay pride marches, and, and he was, of course, born in cats, and, but he also dies of complications with HIV AIDS. Uh, but I felt that he delivered the most poignant message to the lead character, Jeffrey, to tell Jeffrey to hate AIDS, not life. And so through that process, I, I realized I wanted to write a book because I felt like I was living on an island with barely a phone for communication to the outside world about my HIV status. You know, when uh, talking about my sexuality, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, I, I, I was out to my, my friends and family, people who were close to me, people in USA Diving knew about my sexual identity, my sexuality. And, um, you know, it was just my policy not to discuss it with members of the media. And my justification was that I'm entitled to a private life. So that was kind of how I conducted myself. When did that? When did this change? And what was the catalyst? Was it, you know, being Darius? Was it just the amount of pressure? And you, you talked about this, 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 hating something, not life, hating this thing that you're going through, having to keep the secret. What was ultimately the point where you said, "That's it. I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm out of the secret. I'm into the." this next part, which I'm going to assume is a healing, but what, what also was the next part? Well, there's no defining moment. I mean, that, that's so silly to, to think that, oh, there's a one defining moment, you know, when you hit your head, you know, it's like, no, we all have defining moments happening all the time. It, that's the way life is. It's an evolution. Everything's changing it, everything's evolving in 88, I was involved in an abusive relationship. So I was trying to ex extricate myself from that. And then there was threats of blackmail. There was, I mean, there were all kinds of stuff going on. And the one thing, when I was writing the book with Eric Marcus, the one thought that kept going through my head was the truth shall set you free. And so if I could be open and honest and be who I am, then... I don't have to be scared. Nobody can hold anything over me. Where's the truth blown up in your face? Where's the truth blown up in my face? I mean, it sets you free, but what are some of the costs that you've had to pay for your truth? You know, I don't know because I don't focus on that. It actually gives me um, <laughs> great pleasure. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm an Aquarius, so I'm kind of a rebel at heart, you know? And so this, when uh, I was booked to speak in Lawrence, Kansas, and I knew that was the backyard of, at that time, Reverend Fred Phelps. And so I, I knew I was going into kind of hostile territory, as it were. 
And nobody knew about my HIV status because my book had not been released yet. And then right before the event, the book was released and all this was out. And uh, I mean, it was amazing, standing room only. And, uh, and so I go to the event, we're in the green room and they say, oh, we gotta get you to the stage. And they start taking me through the bowels of this auditorium. And I said, isn't there a faster way? He said, yeah, but we don't want you to see what's going on outside. I said, oh, I wanna see, I wanna see. And so in order to keep me safe, they took me you know, a few stores up and so I could kind of look down on what was going on. And there was this whole group of people with, you know, die AIDS, faggot, you'll burn in hell and pictures of me with 666 on my forehead. And I said, oh my God, that's so cool. And so, you know, and so then, you know, I, I gave my presentation and then somebody during the Q&A stands up and says, Mr. Leganis, what do you think of the ignorance that's standing outside this building? Oh, I said, oh, you mean Fred? And they, and they kind of chuckled and they said, yeah. Uh, and so um, I said, I feel like I should go up to him and hand him a teddy bear and tell him he needs lots of hugs because anybody who spews that much hate can't like themselves very much. And so the LGBTQAI student union sent him a bunch of teddy bears in my honor telling him he needs lots of hugs. And I thought that was like so cool. Because when you're, when you're speaking on the speaking circuit, you don't know what the hell people are going to take in or listen, hear, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you spew all this stuff out and I, I'm always shocked that people actually listen to me. We, you were just in, uh, in, in Colorado recently. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping that I would get back from Mexico in time to, to meet you face to face. You had just left, but certainly we've had a, unbelievable tragedy here in Colorado with Club Q. And it prompts me to ask the question, do, do you, do members of your community need slash expect sympathy or empathy? Because, and I'm asking this because I cannot relate to your experience. I can, I, I, I can listen to what you're going through. I can only relate to my experience. I, you know, you're asking to me to comment on a community. Uh, I, I only know that, um, my own experience and my own experiences is really my own. But when we, when we still have so much frustration when we still have so much frustration from the community's experience about still how at risk to violence they are. And then we have a parent who says, I don't know how to call my child a different gender because for 16 years I've seen them like this and thought of them like this, but they've always thought of themselves, but we've never talked about that. And there is a changing culture that is it seems that one side is saying this change is good and the other side is saying this change is bad. And what I want to know is if we can't truly understand what the types of things that you had to go through, because we're not going through them, how do we, how do we begin to say this change is necessary and we need to support this change? We need to get behind our brothers and sisters, our family members, our loved ones who are going through these, this violence, these experiences, and change the rules, change the laws. What's the resistance and what do you need from me to be an ally? What That's what I'm asking. What makes a good ally? <laughs> Let down your ego and listen. 
just listen and take it in. And also, you come from a perspective. We all have our own perspective. So in order to be empathetic and getting in some, you know, somebody else's uh, perspective is listen to what they have to say try to embody what they're saying. What would that be like? If you are growing up XY male and in internally you're seeing in the mirror a woman, a girl or whatever, then take that time to empathize to what would that be like? What would that be like? Oh my God, that must be like so confusing and so upsetting to be able to embrace yourself, embrace who you are innately um, because we are who we are. Uh, we're just trying to discover ourselves. How much farther do we have to go? before you feel like you can go participate in the World Cup and not be under a threat of violence or oppression? How, how do you feel like you're still consistently under a threat? No, I, 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 I don't accept that. I mean, and if it is, then it's, it, it is. I mean, if somebody were to protest, I mean, I, you know, at one of my events and, that's it. I mean, it, it's more uh, commentary of, of them than it is of me. So, and, uh, you know, and, and the biggest thing is not to get out of that judgment, you know, to get, to let go of your ego, let go of your preconceived notion of who somebody is and listen with your whole heart, not, not just, you know, your, your logical brain, because it may not be logical because what right, right or wrong. Why, why are we, it just is, it's not, it's not right or wrong. How did your parents handle it when you came out? You see, you said, had you, had you come out at, uh, by, at the 1984 Olympics or had oh you already God, been yeah. out to your parents? Okay. How, oh my God. Yeah. How yeah. did they handle it? What were the, what was the good? What was the bad? Well, I kind of chickened out with my dad. I, I told my mom, you know, oh, will you tell dad? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then my dad, you know, is like, oh, no, we never had that conversation. But my dad also had very selective listening. So I'm sure that mom had that conversation with him and he just was selected not to hear it. Uh, but uh, yeah, when... Um, Okay, so that that was a whole process too. I mean, I was in theater at University of Miami. Uh, I, I was doing uh, a play, and we went to we were, we were going to go to a, a, a gay dance bar, and so they said we're going to go after opening night, you know, and celebrate. I said, well, I have my mom here. I said, I'll bring her along, and so I brought her. And she enjoyed my friends and we danced. We, I mean, she was treated like a queen. Well, you know, uh, but I mean, she, they bought her drinks and it was, it, you know, she had a blast. And, uh, and so then we stayed up a little bit too late. And then the next night we had a performance and my mother went to the performance the next night too. 
and uh, everybody was kind of tired. And, and my mom comes backstage and said, are we going back to one of those fun places? And I'm like, uh, n- I don't think not tonight. I don't think we're up to it. But, um, but that was kind of my mom. And so then when I was, uh, I, I had a breakup uh, with one of my partners and um, I had to get out there, out, out of there because it was a rather volatile relationship. And so, I mean, it was like, you know, fireworks are going off or we were throwing dishes at each other, you know, it was one of those. Uh, and so then I had to get out of there. And so my mother came up and helped me pack. And as we got everything into the van and I said, you know, mom, Kevin and I were more than just roommates. We were lovers. And she goes, oh, I know, son. What's for dinner? And, and I was like, oh, my God. You know, because I was thinking if my parents ever found out that I was gay, I mean, the world would like open up and swallow me whole. Right. And then I was actually a little disappointed that, <laughs> that she didn't have more of a reaction. But um, she was great. She was just very um, accepting. There's an aspect of being adopted, which which you are, that these things can be, like the fear of the thing, you know, coming out to your mom, the fear of the thing obviously became bigger than the thing. But that would make sense for anybody, especially someone who's adopted, that no matter how well an adoptive parent does, right? It feels like you're under a set of criteria the whole time, always. Right. And so how often, whether it's in your 47 titles of diving or your relationship with your mom or with a, a partner, how often does the adoption abandonment thing show up and intervene in your life? Well, I mean, there are times when it was very beneficial, like when, you know, that sense that in order for me to earn love, I mean, I had to win. That's a lot of pressure, you know, and it's high stakes. So it makes it really, really, really important. Um, It's not real healthy. But then again, I mean, it, it, it is motivation, and so, you know, once you get to a, a place where you accept that you don't have to win, I mean, it, you, you, then the, the winning kind of takes another turn. You know, you're, you're doing it more for yourself in a, in a more uh, healthy way. And that was the one thing that my coach, Ron O'Brien, he really tapped into who I was as a person because I'm not a competitor. I'm not competitive. Um, I'm a performer. That's how I started. I started doing dance and acrobatics and performing on stage when I was three. And so continued on through dance, acrobatics, gymnastics, and then eventually diving. Um, and I always looked at my performance as, as the most important thing. And so that's how my coach coached me was based on performance. And so he really understood. And that was the goal. It wasn't, the gold medals were a byproduct of that hard work and, uh, and of that performance. But it wasn't the ultimate goal. It really, it kind of speaks to the difference between an artist and an athlete, symbolically in my mind. That the athlete's goal mm-hmm. is the trophy, the belt, the title, and yours was the performance. Yeah. Yours was nailing the move. 
Yeah. And fortunately, he understood that. My, my coach understood that. I mean, I did have to learn how to compete. And um, I had great uh, opportunities to, to practice that. Being a performance is indicative of still doing it for someone else. Is that accurate? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, because it's a performance. You're, you're um, looking to engage the audience, to touch the audience, to, you know, and then you have, in diving, you have seven judges who are judging you on a scale from one to 10. And my feeling was I have to win the judges over through my performance. So, uh, and also show them the consistency that I can be consistent again and again and again, so that they're not hesitant to throw up those high scores when they, when I, I perform well. You had talked about off the air before we got started that the experience of your mom's love was one thing. The experience of your dad's love was another to the point that when, when he saw your success beginning to build in diving, he wanted to be with you and you didn't want him there. Um, I, I wanted him there at the competitions, but he got so involved. I mean, there was one time I was learning a back one and a half pike and I was just too scared. And my coach said, okay, we'll, we'll try again tomorrow. And my dad took me home and he said, get your suit on. And he made me do my back one and a half pike on the board at home in the freezing cold water. And, uh, it was, and on the fiberglass board, which is like not regulation. The thing about that experience was, I mean, it, you, you, you can point at my dad as being the bad guy, but you know, I was just as bad because I was so stubborn. I was like, okay, I'm going to show him. I'm really going to hurt myself. So I'll smack on my back, you know? And so I smack on my back, smack on my back. Smack. And I was like, well, you know what? The only one I'm hurting is myself. So I, I finally did it right, you know? And then that's when I asked my dad not to take me to any more practices because he was just too wrapped up in it. But I did take care of my dad the last six weeks of his life. He died of cancer in 1991. And uh, it was that last year uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. And so it we became so close because I was taking him to some of his appointments and keeping up on him. And that's when I came out to my dad about my HIV status. And at that time, we thought of HIV AIDS as a death sentence. So, you know, we were kind of in the same boat. And so I came out about my HIV status. He was checking up on me. I was checking up on him. We had these conversations of quality of life and all that. We even visited that situation back when I was like eight years old or whatever, uh, learning my back one and a half pike. And he said, you know, it's the only way I could communicate to you how much I cared because, you know, I, I remember when he was like, you know, taking off his belt and whipping me. I was like, this is, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. You know, that, that whole thing. I was like, yeah, right. He saw so much talent in me and he didn't want me to waste that talent. And it's the only way that he could communicate that to me because he, his parents died when he was quite young. So he was raised by his grandmother and so he didn't have any role models to parenting. And so we talked about that. And, and you know, a lot of the things that were assumptions that I made and also assumptions that he made, him about me and me about him. And so we were able to kind of 
discuss those things and merge together that we actually, we loved each other very, very much. Talk about being 13, being in juvie, what had been leading up, what had been going on this whole time that it's obviously gotten to the point that now you're in juvenile hall for a few days. Like Mm -hmm. what's, what's happening? You, you've got, you've got a dad who's driving you hard. You got a mom who's very Mm -hmm. open. You feel connected with, you can have a conversation, but still, well, that was before that. That was before I had to come home from school and spend time with mom. So mom and I, I mean, she would take me to practices and all that stuff, but we really didn't open up to each other until after that experience. And uh, what was going on was there was a lot of curiosity. I was 12 experimenting with drugs and alcohol and and all of those things. That's what um, the other kids were doing. I was probably... A lot of people talk about it. That that's just it. You know, a lot of people talk. You know, when you're that age, people talk about, oh yeah, sex and this and drugs and all that. And it's like, oh okay. So I just assumed everybody was doing it and not just talking about it. I kind of jumped in to all that stuff. So um, kind of experimentation. You just use the word experimentation. Did it get to addiction point? Did it get to daily use point, or did you just get busted doing it? Kind of a bit of both, uh, because I didn't really, I mean, I was so passionate about my performance in diving. So there were those areas of which encouraged sobriety. So, uh, but also that was a bit of an addiction as well. You have to, you know, accept that, you know, cause, because it's a compulsion. I mean, it's, you know, going to you know, the Olympics and winning a gold medal, that's great, you know, but winning four, you know, that's a little obsessive. <laughs> There's, there, there, you know, I, it's funny because I joke that I'm, I'm a really sick puppy because I ha- get so obsessive about things, you know, and that's a part of addiction. Yes. I mean, I do, in Boulder, Colorado, we have one of the highest per capita of, of exercise anorexia. And everybody thinks that they're running around healthy, but they're starving themselves. They're fatiguing mm-hmm. out, the, like, et cetera, et cetera. Did you experience that level of more? With the diving, there was definitely, a, you know, a good balance, I think. In preparation for the 88 Olympic Games, the by 88, the Chinese had caught up to me. So I felt like I was hanging on by the skin of my teeth. So I was diagnosed HIV positive. They put me on AZT right away. I didn't know the side effects and all that. But uh, early in the training, when we're really working really hard, I would literally get uh, wake up in the morning and crawl to the bathroom to pour myself the hottest bath that I can withstand so that I could touch my toes, so I could stretch. And I really didn't think about it actually until after I had numerous conversations with a number of my transgender friends. Kristen Worley, I mean, I, she shared what she went through when she went through hormone therapy. And I thought, oh my God, that's the same thing I went through. And one of the side effects I I learned was that lowered testosterone with the AZT and HIV. Um, And so I was probably really testosterone starved, 
you know, that uh, I wasn't recovering. And what she shared in her experience when she started hormone therapy, it was just parallel to what I went through in 88, early 88. So, and my thought, and it just, because I lived it, is that this whole idea, concept that uh, XY female has this unproportionate advantage if she goes through puberty and has that rush of testosterone. I think that's a false, you know, erroneous idea because once you start hormone therapy, then, you know, your body changes. And so I don't think it's the advantage that everybody is playing it out to be. And I think that we're going to learn that, you know, XY female, you know, is not, it's not a, big issue. Sure, you can't take away like uh, when Leah Thomas, you know, was competing in swimming, you know, you can't take away the training that she did before as a male. Uh, But then once she started transitioning those changes, I mean, her times dropped dramatically. So I don't think it's going to be the the advantage that everybody's making it out to be. As we go towards the 88 Olympics and you are dealing with the side effects of AZT and your testosterone drops, were you allowed to get your levels up to a normal level through injection? Well, I, I wasn't tested. I didn't know to test. I, 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 the, the symptoms that Kristen was explaining to me, it just paralleled my experience. And then I did some research and I thought, and that is like one of the side effects that uh, AZT, yeah, it's hindsight, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, I, I, I wouldn't have known to do that. So that means that during that time, you're just forcing it. You're making it happen. You're oh, not, yeah. okay. Okay, right. and how, that seems to be, again, the, 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 that, that, that champion athlete mindset. And now, as we get towards here, the end of the show, and this is where every guest, we start to say, hey, parents, this is what, this is what's needed from you. And then you said at the beginning, you're not a parent, but you have certainly experienced life of coming out um, of, of this global focus, which every, it seems that every child wants to have the kind of focus that you had when you were younger, but with, with an experience of being adopted, with having, um, you know, the, 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 the positive and negative, the adverse and the supportive relationships with both your parents, what besides learning how to not let your ego get in the way and hush up and listen, what is it that a parent needs to do when their child comes out? It's an adjustment. It is definitely adjustment because we have a preconceived notion of who people are. And then when we get new information, then oftentimes it changes that picture. Be patient with yourself. That's what I've learned. I mean, because the whole non-binary thing is, is so new to so many people. And because I do so many speaking engagements and I have been exposed to it, um, then I, I'm understanding it a bit better. But even still, after these, all these years, you know, I, I, I would have this preconceived notion as, oh, if you're bi, you're just too scared to be, admit you're gay or, you know, it, you know, kind of those things that it has to be black and white. It has to be yes and no, you know, but there's, a, there's an in-between 
you know, and and finding that in between is, um, I mean, it's almost like if you're non-binary, it's just you you get it. I mean, you get it because you're falling in, you know, in love with the person. You're not falling in love with the sex. You're, you know, seeing a whole person, um, you know, because we, we don't always. And, 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 and one of the things that I talked to Dr. Um, Dick Swab, he's a, a neuroscientist who studies um, sexual identity, uh, gender identification, and sexuality. He says, you know, that we're all on, a, on the spectrum. If you think of it as we're all on a spectrum, then there is no right or wrong. There is no left or right. There is no it's all that, that, that the in-between that we're made of. In working with parents for 20 years as I have, one of the things I hear often when they are discussing their children who are coming out, who are beginning to ex express their authentic orientation or gender, is that it's not that the parent wants it to be one way or the other, but they're afraid of the violence that their child is mm -hmm. now uh, potentially in danger of, at risk for. What do we say to those parents when those parents are saying, "Don't tell anybody. I'm fine with it, but don't don't come out at school because you could you'll be a victim." Well, anybody who's coming out, young people who are coming out, I always encourage them to go if they're going to come out to go to safe places first. You know, have that support. Have have somebody that um, can. Be in your be in your corner, and not everybody's going to be in your corner, and just accept that. Um, and and also with parents, I mean, you you can't protect your children from everything. You know, they they need to, and and that's a part of learning. It's a part of growing, and that's what I feel my you know my my mother was able to do is you know, let go when she needed to let go, but, you know, hold me when I needed to be held. I remember when I was talking to, uh, I'm going to use their name because I still have so much respect for Soren. Soren founded Queer Asterix here in Boulder, Colorado, and was, was one of my interns. And then they came back to continually train our staff. And I remember doing a show with them where I said, um, you know, I don't care whether you're gay or straight or black. And I, that's a, that's a, that's a general hetero response. Well, I don't care. I don't. And Soren had an incredible response where they say, I need you to, I need you to care. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. that, that hit me as, and that's why I started with the question I did about if I can't give you empathy, if I can't feel what you're feeling or experiencing in this world as a gay man, as a trans woman, how, how, how can I support? And, and that was the, the lesson of caring is first. Care enough to communicate, say something, be there with them, hold them when they need held, and step away when they've got to get the... I wish I knew the name of your dive. the The back half pike, the one and a half pike. Is that what oh, you know? <laughs> let, the reverse two and a half pike. The reserve, the reverse head. two and a half pike. Where yeah, yeah, yeah. and let them hit their back. 
I mean, it's so important. I mean, it, and and understand you're going to make mistakes. I mean, I went rollerblading with a dear friend of mine, Dr. Kate Stone. She's transgender. She's a scientist. And we rollerblade every Monday. And then her daughters came out and joined us. She's from the UK. And so they came over and we're roller, you know, we're rollerblading. And, I, you know, I was talking to his daughter, her, her daughters. I said, oh, yeah, I was with your mother. And I'm like, oh, shit. No. That, oh, and... And, and then I had to ask, I said, Dr. Kate, who are you? And he said, I'm just Kate. I'm just Kate, you know. And I was like, oh, my God, you know. And we're going to make mistakes and expect that. Don't try and be perfect. Nobody's perfect. Um, they'll be forgiving as long as we're forgiving for ourselves. You know, we have to forgive ourselves, too. Give our space and our, our space for grace, where do my parents go next to follow you, to, to fanboy or fangirl over you like I have? Where, where do they go next? <laughs> <laughs> On social, I'm, I'm at Greg Luganus. GregLuganus.com is my website. And you do, you do coaching. I, I, what is your, what's, what's your angle on the coaching? What, what, who is your, are you an athlete's coach? Do you? If you're preparing for something, a big event, nationals world championships or speaking to fortune 500 then i'll get you prepared to give the best performance of your life this has been incredible um thank you for taking the time thank you for being such an advocate for adoption lgbtq plus mental health and addiction human rights you, you've never stopped just being a champion of people of animals and i'm i'm uh, i'm pretty crazy about you, Greg. This is, a, and, oh, and you. you've been a part of uh, my teen experience of looking at the world, um, being in Hollywood, going from a small town, Longmont, Colorado, to Hollywood for college at, the, at an acting school, where I went from rednecks and Mexicans and white people to a prom queen and a prom queen, and going, what <laughs> world have I entered into Hollywood? But <laughs> You were there and your story was always there and you were a feature of, of life. And um, thank you. Thank you for just, just continuing to be a champion. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I'm not usually one who's at a loss for words. And I'm not I, being starstruck and interviewing someone like Greg it's it's an experience because there's so much there there's so much to offer and parents you know that these stories about look it started at 13 years old and juvie and ended up you with with gold medal after gold medal after championship after 47 national titles more than anyone in US history so when you're looking at your kids and they're cutting, this depression that's led to a suicide attempt, the, the drug use, that's why this show, that's why is is to hear that this person's mess, Greg's mess, is the reason he's the messenger now for so many people because you can't be a messenger without the mess. And that's that's why. Be with your kids. Do do. Do what he said. 
shut up. Let the ego quiet down for a second. Your survival because of your child's identity or struggle is not at stake. Your identity as a parent because of your child's struggle is only at stake if you release your identity to your child's experience. And if your happiness, and I will say this again, and I know this is hard, but if your happiness is predicated on your child's behavior, your child's habits, your child's orientation, your child's gender, if that's where your happiness lays, your whole family is screwed. And so you have to center back into yourself as a parent so that you teach your child how to center in themselves. And that's what I got from talking to Greg, talking to someone who's centered in themselves. I want to thank Deepin Productions for doing such a great job on the show and the awesome music that I still love and still get compliments about. And to you parents for listening, for returning each and every episode. Thank you for your listen, like, subscribe, shares. If you would, please head on over and leave a review for Beyond Risk and Back. And I will see you next time.